Hey, howdy, space nerds. Thanks so much for subscribing and listening to this podcast. You know, as the holiday season approaches, think about are we there yet when you're making your list and checking it twice. A gift to WMFE, the station that produces this podcast, helps pay for this program and keeps us exploring. So give the gift of exploration. Visit WMFE.org slash support. And thanks. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The story of the black female mathematicians that sent humans to space is hitting theaters this month. There's been quite a bit of buzz around the movie, Hidden Figures, and I'm quite excited to see it myself. But that's not what we're talking about today. On this episode, we're going to explore more pioneer women of science all the way to the turn of the 19th century. My guest, Davis Sobel, is a former New York Times science reporter and longtime contributor to The New Yorker. Her latest book, The Glass Universe, looks at the women at Harvard Observatory and how they were breaking ground not only because of their gender, but because of the scientific observations they were making in the field of astronomy. Well, Deva, thanks so much for speaking with me. Uh, pleasure. Good morning. So, Deva, how did you how did you come across this story of the the history of these women at Harvard University? I heard about one of them years ago when I was interviewing astronomer Wendy Friedman, and she mentioned the name Henrietta Swan Leavitt, which was new to me. And then when I went to learn more about Miss Leavitt, I I found out she was working in a room full of women at Harvard University at the uh, observatory. And that was a big surprise. And, and this was quite some time ago, right? What, what, what year does this uh, story kind of take place? The story starts in the 1880s and goes through the end of World War II. And um, the, the women were involved in many kinds of projects but the two that had the most lasting value were the classification of the stars and the establishment of a distance scale for measuring distances in space. Now, how common was it for women to be um, working in an academic uh, institution like Harvard or working in the field of astronomy at that particular time in history? It wasn't common at all. And it, it was a, a wonderfully unusual situation. And it was really to the credit of the observatory more than the university, because the observatory was a separate institution. It had to raise its own money and pretty much set its own rules. And the director at the time, Edward Pickering, was very broad-minded and forward-thinking, he found several women already working there when he took over. Uh, he was a young man when he took over, not quite 30. And uh, most of the women there were the uh, daughters, sisters, wives of the astronomers. But outside women began to be hired. And Pickering saw in them a... Uh, uh, a willingness to do the very difficult, tedious work, uh, an ability to see patterns in the the photographs of the sky that that he took. He he initiated a very important and 
uh, new kind of program in astrophotography, something we take for granted now. We see all these magnificent images uh, of the heavens, the, uh, the astronomy picture of the day. But at the time, there was a lot of question about whether this was a good thing to do. Uh, how could a photograph compare with the eye of an experienced observer? But he really, um, he knew he was seeing the future, and he got behind photography in a big way and amassed a collection of uh, a century's worth of photographs, so about half a million of these plates, which are still at Harvard and uh, still in use and are in fact now being digitized so that people can have easy access to them. Tell me about uh, some of the work that these uh, so-called human calculators were doing on these glass slides. Like, what what actually went into it, the, the actual calculations that they did or, or the measurements that they had to do? Well, at first, the calculations involved um, the, the positions of the stars. So what is seen or photographed has to be corrected for the distortions uh introduced by the atmosphere, by the Earth's motion in space. So there would be calculations to apply for any observation. Or if you were looking at the brightness of the stars and you um, turning a, an instrument dial, there, there'd be a way to um, relate the number of dial turns to uh, a brightness level. Many things had to be calculated. What we now call a computer uh, is a machine that took its name from what was once a job description. Men had been employed as computers at observatories all over the world. It was not an unusual thing. What was unusual here was the women were not only doing calculation, but they were doing analysis of photographic plates and making bona fide discoveries. And this is this is tedious work, but very important work to, to astronomy, right? Yes, very important. And many astronomers uh, admit that, that the work is tedious, and it's not for everybody. But if it's what you love, then having the chance to do it is thrilling. Now, not only were, were the women kind of doing this work and, and working on these measurements, but a lot of the work was funded by women as well, and in your book we meet Anna Palmer Draper. She's, she's an heiress of a real estate and railroad magnate. What got her so interested in science, and how did that contribution help these discoveries at, that, at the observatory? Anna Palmer Draper married into astronomy. She married amateur astronomer Dr. Henry Draper, and the term amateur now, then as now, doesn't mean someone who's um, uh, not that skilled. It means someone who has the freedom to follow his or her own interest. And uh, Dr. Draper, thanks to his wife's fortune, was all set to give up medicine and devote his life to an astronomy project that he devised. But uh, just when the couple uh, was set to do this, he fell sick and died So uh, at age 45. So she wanted to make sure that the work went on. She couldn't do it alone and wound up giving the money to Harvard to 
excuse me, to realize his dream. And the only thing she asked in return was that the project be named for him. And then uh, another very uh, wealthy New York woman uh, in her 70s, just very interested in astronomy. Her name was Catherine Wolfe Bruce. She also wanted to play a part and uh, wrote, wrote Pickering a check for $50,000 so he could build a big telescope in the southern hemisphere and be able to capture all the stars. And the, um, there's some photographs in the book, and, and the, the pieces of glass that, that these images are, are placed on are, are very fascinating to look at. And, and I believe that's where you got the name from of the book, The Glass Universe. It's all these little pieces. The Glass of Universe, book. yes, because the photographs really capture everything in the sky. In fact, the information content of the images is so dense, it, it has not been plumbed even now. If you're looking at a picture that contains 100,000 stars, there's only so much uh, you can pull out of it. So, and, and there was limited time, limited numbers of people working at these things. So the, the, the information content is still largely untapped, and the, the digitization project will, will help with that. Kind the plates are also beautiful. Oh yes, I should add. Yes. Sorry, uh, just as objects, some of them really are just pictures of the sky, and they are striking, unusual looking because most of them show the stars as black against the white background, and uh, many of them have markings on them in colored ink made by the women while they were doing their investigations. So the notations are right on the glass with the images. And those images are in the book, so that's a really great reason to pick up the book, right? Yes, I, I hope people will enjoy looking uh, at them. And some, some of them are already available online, and more will be as the digitization project continues. And it, it really just kind of gives credit to how uh, amazing these astronomers were. I mean, this is almost 100 years ago with no computers, and they're able to take these photographs and make these measurements and kind of map out the sky using just, you know, their brain in a, a pencil and paper. It's, it's, it's very fascinating. It's amazing how much can be done with a pencil attached to a brain, yes. So you mentioned Edward Pickering. Um, he's, he's the director of the observatory. Now, he, he's sometimes criticized for his work with, uh, with the women in the lab, paying them low wages to do these uh, tedious calculations. Do you think, after your research and, and writing this book, do you think that's a fair criticism of Pickering? I don't. I think he gets a very bad rap because he was giving them an extraordinary opportunity. He didn't tell them how to analyze it. He let them develop the system, and then he published their results and gave them full credit. And he also nominated them for prizes, um, included them in, in meetings. They became members of the American Astronomical Society. Some of them were invited to join foreign astronomical societies, such as the Royal Astronomical Society in England. So they um, were given a, a platform that made them visible, and they really had respect and admiration from their peers all over the world. This is 
not at all a chip-on-the-shoulder story. And I think Pickering um, was was really a, a loved leader. Now, the book highlighting the work of women in the science field, it, it reminds me of another book that hit pop culture this year, and now it's heading to the silver screen. That, that's Hidden Figures that looks at the uh, black yeah. females that were responsible for the calculations. Why do you think it's only now that we're starting to pay attention to the early work that these women did in the fields of, of space exploration and, and astronomy? There's something in the air. We, we had a woman running for president, too, this year. Um, it's, there's, there's a great interest in these stories. Um, and the, the women of Langley, uh, uh, whom uh, Margot Lee Shetterly writes about in, in Hidden Figures, were uh, a, a more modern uh, version of the Harvard ladies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were doing similar calculations with, with pen and paper as well. Yes, yes. And then when, computer, when the machine computers came in, some of those women actually became uh, programmers. Now, it's no secret that STEM careers lack diversity, both race and gender, as we've, we've spoken about. How do you think that we can and fix this, and, and what kind of role do you play as an author and a writer in kind of changing the scope of, of STEM careers in, in the STEM industry? I don't know how much power I have, but I do love to tell a good story. I think this, this is a really good story showing that uh, women have always been interested in science. They've, they've been there all along. It's okay to be good at math okay to be interested in science and um, I think the the characters are inspirational in their way for their their dedication their insight uh, sometimes uh, in the case of Cecilia Payne for example who was the first person to earn a PhD at Harvard in astronomy uh, and the fact that a woman became the first Ph.D. is a direct outgrowth of Pickering's hiring of women and the opportunities that became available there. Um, but in the course of her doctoral research, Cecilia Payne pointed out that although uh, there are many types of stars, um, all of them consist mainly of hydrogen, which was shocking at the time. It just seemed ridiculous that the lightest element could be the most prominent constituent of stars. But it took only four years for that result to be validated and accepted worldwide. Now, when researching this book and and writing this book, is there a particular fact or story that that really stood out to you, something you didn't expect or, or something that really stuck with you? Well, I certainly didn't expect the first Harvard Ph.D. to be a woman. Um, uh, the situation of, of the observatory, the fact that they were doing real research, making real discoveries, that it wasn't scut work, it wasn't something just cute or quaint, um, that the, the women were given the opportunity to make a real contribution, and they made it. That was Davis Sobel, a former New York Times science reporter and longtime contributor to The New Yorker. Her latest book is The Glass Universe. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. And that's actually going to do it until after the new year. 
We're going to take a short break from this podcast, but don't worry, we'll be back. And with a very exciting interview to kick off the new year, Star Trek actor and activist George Takei joins the podcast. So be sure to listen for that one when it drops in the new year. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. You can follow this show online. We're on Twitter at AWTYMars. Are We There Yet, Mars? Or reach out to me in the Twitterverse. I'm at SpaceBrendan. You can also send us an email, yet at WMFE.org. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's how more people learn about this podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. Happy and safe holidays to all of you out there. I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.